great series for you already. And you know, um, for a lot of us who attend church regularly, it, it's easy to kind of get a little uh, complacent about things. You know, we grew up in church, or you've been going to church for a long, long time, and it's really easy to just kind of take things for granted. You know, you just show up, and you do it, and you go home, and you show up, and you do it again, and you go home, and over time, it kind of becomes so much a part of us, which is not all bad, but it becomes a part of us so that we kind of lose sight a little bit of, of why... We gather like this. And I really love what uh, James K.A. Smith uh, describes. Uh, listen to this. He says, We should consider something that easily slips from our notice. The very fact that we are here. That on a Sunday morning, one of the few times that the city streets are quiet, and even the steady hum of consumption and production gets a bit quieter, here we find people streaming into a space to gather for worship of the triune God. Singles and families, seniors and toddlers make the effort to gather together at an appointed time not of their choosing. We could still be snug in our beds at home or enjoying the newspaper with coffee on our front porch, but instead we're part of, let's be honest, a rather motley crew that's made its way here. Families have wrestled with children to make them presentable. Some probably argued in the car on the way here. Students have perhaps only just felt the warmth of the bed after a Saturday night of entertainment when they have to emerge, bleary-eyed, to go to church. Senior citizens who find themselves secluded in nursing homes have been craving this day all week when a friend drops by to pick them up to gather with the saints for worship. Week after week, for millennia around the globe, a peculiar people is gathered by a call to worship. It's easy to take church for granted, isn't it? But uh, it's really uh, such a privilege to be able to gather together and be a part of a healthy church, which really kind of begs the question, okay, what is a healthy church? How do we know the kind of things that we're supposed to be focused on when we're gathered here? How do we uh, make sure that we're not taking things for granted, right? Well, there's an organization called Nine Marks. They've identified nine marks of what they consider to be a healthy church. They say a healthy church should be focused on, on these nine things. Take a look. Preaching is one. Uh, preaching's unique to the church. It's different from anything else. And it's important, examining the scriptures, applying them to our lives today. Okay. Uh, biblical theology, crafting the way we think and act around what God has revealed in his word. So far, so good. The gospel, that's the central message of the Bible, really the central element of the Christian life. Uh, their fourth point, they say, conversion. It's important that a church understand what God does and what we do in terms of our own salvation. Evangelism is next. One of the purposes of the church is helping other people come to understand and embrace the truth of the gospel, right? Membership. A lot of people think church membership is something kind of added on later or added on top of what the Bible talks about the church. But really, there's, there's a fair bit of evidence that church membership is a biblical idea, but that's another sermon for another time, perhaps. But uh, discipline, kind of an odd thing to see on this list of what constitutes a healthy church. But I think the idea there is simply that uh, the church helps members pursue godliness and fight off sin. Discipleship, the church helps members grow, seems simple enough. And then the ninth one, they say, is leadership. As people grow, they develop into leaders. So that's one list, one possible list. Uh, there's some good thoughts here, right, you know? But they're not the only people to come up with a list like this of what makes up a healthy church. In fact, throughout our, uh, our mapping process, part of our pastoral search, we had folks in focus groups fill out a survey about this church, and that survey was really built around eight marks of a healthy church. 
uh, different characteristics that should exist in a growing and healthy church. Let's look briefly at that list. Uh, number one of that list, it says empowering leadership. In other words, uh, people are allowed opportunities to grow and develop as ministers and as servants. Or gift-based ministry, uh, people encouraged to use their spiritual gifts in the church and outside the church. Passionate spirituality, disciples are growing, there's excitement around that. Effective structures, that's kind of an unusual thing maybe to see on this list, but a healthy church has effective structures that, that help it stay healthy and stay growing. Uh, inspiring worship services, self-explanatory there perhaps. Uh, the sixth one they've got is holistic small groups. Small groups that are holistic, meaning they help people grow and serve and care for other people. Uh, need-oriented evangelism. A healthy church meets the needs of its community. And the eighth one is loving relationships. Seems important. It's the core of any healthy church, right? So there's, there's another list, another uh, helpful list, but it's different, right? Uh, two different lists, both helpful in different ways. If only there was some way we could kind of boil it down a little bit, right? Get to the, the most basic stuff. If we could just kind of simplify things. I think that would help. Just, uh, uh, just boil it down to one, maybe two things that we could be focused on. Well, I'm glad you asked. We can. Here's one more example. Not a list, but just one sentence. One sentence. John Calvin, the famous reformer of the 1500s, he says there's only a couple of things that are needed for a church. And this is what he says. He says, wherever we see the word purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered, a church exists. And there you go. That's, uh, that's it. Preaching and what he calls the sacraments, meaning baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper, that's, uh, that's it. That's pretty simple, you know, focus on those things. And, and, you know, I don't intend to argue one of these lists, one of these positions over the others. I just share them to help us be thinking about church. I mean, here we are gathered week after week after week, and what are we supposed to be doing with ourselves? What kind of things should we be focused on? And, and how many things? And what kind of structure is necessary for that? And, and maybe it's the things on these lists we've read, or maybe it's some other things that aren't on these lists. And, and in the passage that we're going to explore this morning, we're going to see yet another description of the church. It's another list, just like the ones that we've looked at. And uh, as we examine this list, we're going to see the kind of things that we should be focused on. We're going to boil it all down to just one thing, one very critical, important thing. And we're going to find this one thing that really drives all the other elements of what we do as a church. And the passage that we look at today, it, it serves as a sort of a summary a summary of what's just happened in the book of Acts, the beginning of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it's something that, that Luke, the author, he does several times throughout the book of Acts. Several times he, he kind of puts these little summary statements, these little paragraphs like the one we're going to look at today. And they serve as kind of structural markers for the book. They're, they're hinges where one section ends and another section begins. And if you're curious about all of them, I listed them in your sermon notes. Uh, you can look at them later. And uh, you know, as you may know, you may recall from a couple of weeks ago, the book of Acts really follows the progression that Jesus himself laid out in chapter 1. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I want you to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and that's their mission. That's the, the path that the book traces as they fill, fulfill that mission. And so the paragraph we're going to look at today, it's one of these summary paragraphs summarizing what's happened at the beginning of the book, the first 
two chapters of Acts, and, uh, and it's a hinge that opens up to, to what comes next. So they begin serving as witnesses in Jerusalem, just like Jesus told them to. But before that and after Pentecost comes this little paragraph, this summary paragraph, and it's so uh, rich and full, it really warrants its own study. Uh, you know, in this series, Wildfire, we're not going to look at every part of the book of Acts. We're going to be picking and choosing, and, and yet this is one of the passages that we chose because I think uh, it's no, there's no doubt to me that it's worth some time and worth some attention. It describes the church, just like the, uh, the lists, the definitions we looked at. Here's uh, one that comes right from where the church begins, the very beginning. So if you've got your Bible, I'd love for you to open it up to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at, uh, towards the end of the chapter, starting in verse 42. 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's so many things we could talk about related to this passage, so many wonderful bits. Each verse uh, in this paragraph could be its own sermon, so rich and inspiring in many ways, helping us see what the church could be focused on or should be focused on as people live out their faith. And, and we see some amazing results from this church that's doing the right kinds of things. But, but what I want us to focus on is not so much the details of this passage right now. Instead, what I want us to see about this significant paragraph is just where it falls. Uh, I want us to notice the progression of events. Okay, So instead of just drilling down on the inspiring details, I just want us to be challenged by something that I'm guessing that, that not any of us have ever really thought that much about before. So we're going to take a step back from this paragraph, and we're going to consider something so important, so significant, that I think it's going to challenge us to really think about our own church in a different light. And in order to do that, we just got to back up a little bit. We're going to do a little review. So flip one page back in your Bible to the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1. And we've already seen this, uh, this own challenge from Jesus to his apostles, the challenge that forms the structure of this book. He tells them in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's their mission, right? The mission of these apostles. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're going to be witnesses, and I simply want us to recognize that the first thing that happens in this book, that the, the, the story of the beginning of the church, is that Jesus gives them the mission. That's the first step. So first there's a mission, a commissioning, if you will, right? In fact, if you wanted to go back even a little bit farther to the end of the Gospels, where Jesus gives the Great Commission, it's basically the same challenge. He tells the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So the mission, the commissioning, that comes first. And then comes empowerment. The Holy Spirit comes to these same people. The Holy Spirit gives them the power they need to be uh, witnesses, to be on mission. And now after this, we get to this passage that's our focus today. We get to this birth of the church, the beginning of the church. And the order of events, I think, is very significant. That's what I want us to pay attention to. So we could say it this way. The church doesn't have a mission. 
The mission had a church. Let me say that again. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission had a church. The mission comes before the church. Why is the order so important? It's important because getting the order right affects everything that we do as a church. If mission comes first, it it colors all the things that we're focused on and that we do every day as a church. If mission comes first, then, then everything the church does should ultimately support the mission, should serve to advance the mission, the mission of making disciples or being witnesses, as Jesus says in Acts 1. So the mission comes first, and the church is born out of that. The whole reason the church exists is to accomplish this mission. And with that truth in mind, with the truth that mission comes first, I want us to look at this passage carefully. And I want us to understand two crucial shifts in our attitude that, we, that need to occur if mission comes first. So for the first shift, I want us to just notice what the church is devoted to in this passage. The very first thing they're devoted to, look at that, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So see, this paragraph, it serves as a model for us. It's just like the lists we looked at of what makes up a healthy church. We should also be devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? But what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be devoted to that? If the church is built to accomplish the mission, if mission comes first, then that means that the church becomes a place for equipping, not just learning. That's the first shift, a shift from learning to equipping. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching so that we can equip people for mission. That's the first shift from learning to equipping. Now, an apostle, by definition, is a person who is an eyewitness to Jesus. So these original apostles, they walked and talked with Jesus. They learned from him. They got this mission, this great commission from him. And now they're passing these things on to the rest of the church family. People are devoted to the apostles' teaching. And and they need to know how to live, how to think. What do they do now that they've been redeemed? And, And now that they're followers of Jesus, how are they supposed to be living? All those kinds of things. That's what the apostles are going to be teaching them. And for us, it's the same. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's different for us because uh, for them, they hadn't written it down yet. There was no New Testament yet. The the apostles were alive, so they just told people orally. And it wasn't until later when the apostles began to die, they started to write things down. And, And so that's what we have. We have the written version of the apostles' teaching. This is the apostles' teaching. And, and part of our focus should be devoting ourselves to it. But if the mission comes first then the way we do that affects uh, how we're devoted to this teaching. We shift to equipping and not just learning. The teaching becomes a tool to equip us to go and make disciples, to fulfill the mission, not just devoting ourselves to the Bible because it makes us feel good or because we like reading the Bible, not just for our own learning, but it becomes a, a field manual. We get equipped so we can go and be witnesses. We use it to equip other people. When the church gets mixed up, if we put the church first and the mission after, then we come at the apostles' teaching all wrong. We use it just to grow ourselves and just grow for the sake of growth, not for the sake of the mission. But when mission comes first, then we use the Bible to help us grow with an outward focus. We shift from learning to equipping. We use it to help us accomplish the mission, to to be witnesses to all that Jesus said and did. A minute ago, we read the Great Commission, Jesus' words at the end of Matthew, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and 
teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Well, the focus on teaching here is the same as it should be in our church, equipping others to go and be witnesses. We devote ourselves to the Bible so we can be equipped, so we can help other people come to understand and obey Jesus' own teaching. And it's really, really easy to just devote ourselves to learning, to to feeding ourselves. But the church doesn't have a mission. The mission had a church, and that changes our focus. We shift from just learning to equipping, our own equipping and devoting ourselves to equipping other people. And the focus on equipping, it shows up in this very paragraph in Acts 2. Look at uh, verse 44. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So here we see the results of this equipping. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to equipping, and as a result, their lives are being changed. The church is actually living out the kinds of values that Jesus taught his disciples. They're not just gathered in Bible study groups for the sake of learning because mission comes first. They're actually living out the principles, not just learning, but they're equipping. They share things they have with people who have need. Their actions reflect that kind of equipping that they receive. And let's not forget, there's over 3,000 people in this early church. That's amazing to think that 3,000 people would all agree to this kind of lifestyle. I mean, for them to do this, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And it has to be the result of their being equipped, devoted to the mission first, and the church gathering activities flow out of that. And I want us to notice verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This helps us understand where they're meeting, where they're getting this equipping, and they're doing it out in public in a place where others can come and be equipped themselves. That's pretty significant. It tells us that the mission is first, and they, the teaching's not just for them, it's for other people as well. They're devoted to being equipped by the apostles' teaching out there in public. Plenty of other people can hear that teaching, would be exposed to it. You see examples of that later on in the book Acts, and those people had a chance to become a part of the church then as well. So if mission comes first, then one of the primary areas of focus, our devotion to the apostles' teaching, is not just for the sake of learning, but it's for the sake of equipping, equipping ourselves for mission and equipping other people. This week I met some missionaries who live in France, and uh, they have a unique space where they gather as a church. It's a space that they use all week long. And during the week, it's kind of like a, a communal office space. So a person can come in and rent a desk or rent a computer and, and do some work there. And so the missionaries, they have this, this space where anybody can come in and, and do some work during the week. And, and they shared a story about uh, talking to one person who came in to do some work, and they were just striking up a conversation and, and asked them, say, hey, hey, we're trying to translate some things. Can you maybe help us with this, this particular word? How do you translate this idea in French? And, and uh, you know, the guy told them, and uh, he was like, well, that's kind of a weird word, kind of like religious language. What, what are you working on that you would need that kind of translation? So they told him they're working on something related to the Bible, the apostles' teaching, right? And so they were able to have a great conversation with this guy, ended up sharing the gospel with him. But because they're out working in a public space, uh, the learning that they're doing becomes equipping for this other guy. It's exactly the kind of thing we see here in Acts. The early church, they met in the temple courts where everybody would be gathered. We go out into the community, living out faith in public spaces, learning becomes equipping. So if the mission comes first, then the church is devoted not just to learning, but to equipping. 
That's the first shift, the strengthening each other in God's word, and the results of that is, is lived out, just like we see in this passage. It's changing the way they live, changing the way we should live, living out our faith in public. Now, there's other things that the church is devoted to. Uh, look again at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So fellowship's a big part of the church, a critical part of the church. We saw it in the, the lists that we looked at earlier, marks of a healthy church. And here fellowship is even defined a little bit. It includes these two areas, breaking of bread and prayer. So, so being together, sharing meals together and praying together, uh, sharing that, that intimate uh, love and, and knowledge and care for each other, that's fellowship. But fellowship's one of the easiest areas to get confused because if the church comes first, then fellowship looks like one thing, but if the mission comes first, fellowship looks like something totally different. If mission comes first, then fellowship shifts from being exclusive to inclusive. That's the second shift. For so many churches, fellowship is just an inward-only activity, gathering as a church and kind of sealing ourselves off from the rest of the world, the rest of the community. But that kind of fellowship, it's not at all what the original church is focused on. For them, the mission came first, and their fellowship was inclusive. Look at the end of the paragraph, starting at the end of uh, verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So see, they're fellowshipping together, they're sharing meals together, but they're not doing it in a, in a centralized way. Uh, they're, they're dispersed all over the city. Uh, notice the next verse, verse 47, tells us a bit about the, the result of this kind of fellowship. They, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. So right there, that's an indication that their fellowship is inclusive, it's not exclusive. Fellowship that's exclusive, it doesn't enjoy the favor of anybody on the outside, right? Fellowship that's inclusive, that's how it works when mission comes first. Fellowship is critical, but it's inclusive. That's the shift. Others are seeing it, they get to experience it, and they get to become part of the church as well. And Jesus himself talked about the same kind of shift. Before he was crucified, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples. He fellowshiped. He broke bread with them. And this is what he told them. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So he commands them to love one another, to experience this kind of fellowship. But notice what the purpose of the fellowship is. is so that other people will know. The fellowship's meant to be inclusive, pointing outward. If mission comes first, fellowship is designed to accomplish that mission, to draw people into the church. I came across a story not long ago that hits right on this idea of inclusive fellowship. And this story comes from a woman named uh, Rosaria Butterfield. And Rosaria, uh, she was a professor at Syracuse University, and she was a lesbian feminist. So in many ways, kind of opposite uh, thinking of, of a lot of us here. But 
She's living her life, enjoying her identity, and was even writing a book. She was even writing a book about how terrible Christians are and why they hate members of the LGBT community. And so I share this with you just as you get a sense of, of where she was at in her life. And I say was because she became a Christian. She became a very committed Christian. That's a great story in itself. But, uh, but she recently shared some things about her own experience, about from becoming an outsider to becoming an insider, so to speak. And she talks a lot about this very idea of inclusive fellowship. She talks about it as hospitality. And this idea we see in the early church, same idea, breaking bread together, sharing a meal just with people in a way that's inclusive fellowship. And I want to share with you just some of what she says about this idea. So these are her words. She says, first of all, it's not entertainment. Hospitality is about meeting the stranger, welcoming that stranger to become a neighbor. And then knowing that neighbor well enough that if by God's power he allows for this, that neighbor becomes part of the family of God through repentance and belief. It has absolutely nothing to do with entertainment. She says, entertainment's about impressing people, keeping them at an arm's length. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home, just as you are, and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. Hospitality is fundamentally an act of missional evangelism. And she goes on to tell the story of how she experienced just this kind of hospitality. Listen to what she says. When I lived as a lesbian activist, I'd been in a lesbian relationship for some years, and I very much thought, this is who I am. This is how I want to live. And when I started writing my book, it was on the religious right and the people they supposedly hated like me. And I got to know a neighbor, Ken Smith, who was also a conservative pastor. What was striking was that his home looked a lot like my home. Among my circles in New York in the 90s during the AIDS crisis, somebody's home was open every night of the week. There was a lot going on. The community had to gather together, not by invitation only, because this was a crisis. This was an emergency. And we called ourselves family. I thought that was unique to the gay community, but it wasn't, because Ken Smith's community was like that too. Ken's Christian community gathered at his house at all hours. I learned this because he invited me in. Inclusive fellowship right there. For two years, she says, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I mocked and despised and rejected. I accepted them when it worked for me, and I rejected them all the other times. There's simply no way I would have walked into a church if I hadn't had a genuine friendship with the man behind the pulpit. For two years, I was part of Ken Smith's ministry. I met with them once a week at their home. The door was wide open. People were always in and out of the house, people from church and people not from church. Heated, genuine conversation would happen. People would speak honestly. Tears would flow. But it was different because Ken would open the Bible and then he would pray. It was so disarming, I couldn't help but go back. It was in this context of hospitality that Ken brought the church to me because it was impossible for me to get to the church without the bridge of somebody's home, she says. So if mission comes first, then fellowship is inclusive, it's not exclusive. One author says it this way, he says, Survey the Bible, looking specifically at strategies for outreach and evangelism. You will find that the single most prominent pattern for growth is the fellowship of Christians in Acts chapter 2. If mission comes first, fellowship is inclusive. Just like Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So this passage, this little paragraph describing the early church has a lot to teach us. 
But primarily, it teaches us that the church doesn't have a mission. The mission had a church. Mission comes first. And, and it, everything that we do as a church must support that mission, must flow out of that mission. That's the lesson this passage teaches us. And as we apply it to our own lives, uh, to our own church, I just want to apply it in a couple of different ways. First, I want us to, to make this shift in thinking about learning. As you read the Bible, are you attending church? Are you reading the Bible just for the sake of your own learning? Well, how can you make a shift to uh, not just absorbing teaching, but to equipping or being an equipper? I want to challenge each of us as we engage the Bible, this apostle's teaching, constantly be asking ourselves, how is this helping me be a better witness for Jesus? How does what I'm learning help me make disciples? And let me challenge us too. Equip the next generation. Invest in the next generation. We talk a lot about being a multi-generational church, and it's wonderful, but part of that means we've got to all be equipping the next generation, all of us. Uh, just this past week, we had a meeting with several different folks talking about uh, some changes to our ABF ministry, and one of the big themes, people said, hey, just, just do away with the age barriers, and we want to interact with people from other generations. Okay, that's great. Here's your chance. Equip the next generation, right? We've got a lot of folks here who know a whole lot about the Bible. Let's start equipping people. Let's devote other people to the apostles' teaching. Let's see that that Bible knowledge show up in a shift from learning to equipping. A second way I want us to apply this message is related to the idea of fellowship. Let's utilize our fellowship to go and make disciples. Let's shift to inclusive fellowship. Who can you invite into your life? And maybe it's a person like Rosaria Butterfield that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be invited into your life. But pray about that. Uh, in a series that comes after Wildfire, we're going to be exploring the idea of inclusive fellowship a little bit more. But for now, there's one really simple way that you can start. You can take advantage of our block party kit out there. Uh, you can see it out there in the foyer. You can learn all about it out there. You can just... Take all that stuff. Take it and use it and have your own party this summer. That's the heart behind the block party kit, inclusive fellowship. It's got everything you need to host a party for your coworkers or your neighbors or your, whoever's in your life. You know, so, so take advantage of that if you need that help. Uh, the logo that we created for the series Wildfire looks like this. And it's just a map with a bunch of little fires all over the city. Well, that's us. That's us. That's what we want our valley to look like. All of us empowered by the Holy Spirit, breaking bread and praying in our homes with other people, using inclusive fellowship to make disciples, right? I want to leave you with one quote about this passage that summarizes a lot of things we've talked about. In Acts, we never see a community turn so inward that taking the message to those outside and engaging with those outside is forgotten or ignored. That's the example we can learn from, from this early church. The church does not have a mission. The mission had a church. And if mission comes first, then learning becomes equipping and fellowship becomes inclusive and not exclusive. Let me pray. God, we want to be a church that is on mission. We want to be a church that is devoted to you, to the things that are important to you, to your word, to the fellowship you've called us to. And yet we want to do that in a way that reflects the heart of what you're after. We want to do it in a way that shows everyone 
that we're your followers because we're devoted not only to learning but to equipping. We're devoted not only to our own fellowship but to fellowship that's inclusive, Lord. And I pray that you would give us uh, a sense of what that looks like in our own lives. Give us what we need to be able to live out your mission as a faith family and as individuals, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.